2: Starving. Any idea how long to
1: Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Hillary Busis here with a special bonus episode as we talk to the showrunner of True Detective Night Country.
3: Week by week, we've tried to solve this mystery and now it's time to take a moment to channel our inner Liz Dampers and ask the right questions to Issa Lopez.
1: So now that we've had a bit of time to digest these epic six episodes, let's hear from the source on how it all came together. Lisa Lopez. Enjoy
3: the conversation.
2: First of all, I just, I, I didn't even, this is so funny. I know we already started, but I'm going to, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> I, I didn't know that this existed because I'm, I, I'm being very cautious with, with the internet and social media. Mm. Uh, Why ever intense. could that be? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm always careless and, oh my God, these last three weeks, it's gotten intense both it. on the love but also on the you know it's crazy mm. but uh so i was um uh mary joe my producer who i love uh she was like oh, are you listening to the vanity fair and i was like oh is there a, a i didn't know so today <laughs> not realizing that we were going to do this i i clicked and i started listening and i was like oh my god they're getting everything right <laughs> i loved it <laughs> well, we missed so a it's couple great to then. meet you yeah. Oh, man. Well,
1: Chris and Chris and I were just talking about uh, feeling like we were studying, uh, like, right before we talked to you, just, uh, like, for a test. And hearing you say that we got everything right. like a
3: pluses. That's huge yeah, for us. Yes. Yeah.
1: As a pair of overachievers.
3: We really needed to hear that. All we wanted. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but, yeah, Isa, it's so great to have you here. Um, we're so excited to really break down the season with you. Um Maybe we could start with something that I actually noticed after we recorded the first episode of this podcast. So I've been doing um, a list of Easter eggs, keeping track of them for VF.com that I've been updating after each episode. And when I rewatched the pilot... I came across something that I like totally blew my mind once I realized it, which is that Raymond Clark, the character, shares his name with an actual murderer, mm-hmm. an actual scientist who actually murdered a woman named Annie, Annie. a fellow scientist at Yale. It has was you know convicted for her murder and is currently in jail. Um, and like when I saw that connection, I was like, I don't even know if I can write this down because it feels like a spoiler. But obviously, if you Google it, you can find this out. So yet yeah, tell us about
2: planting that in there. I think I learned about it after the episode aired. Oh, really? No
3: way. <gasps> that was that's, yes. a, that's a coincidence? That's a coincidence? That's
2: a fucking coincidence, man. I read about it and I was absolutely, first of all in all, that that could happen. What are the chances? Number one. Number two, immediately I was worried because, mm-hmm. yes, because it's a spoiler <laughs> and because um I don't want you know I I feel that sometimes it's it's a little ghoulish to take an actual horrible event like this and just put it in a show whose main purpose even though there's a message in it is entertainment. But it was airing. I wasn't I could not go back and change his name. How did you come
3: up with his name? Was it just like, oh, this is a a, a name of a guy? Like how did you come up because No, no. <laughs>
2: Every name, you know, it's it's one of the biggest traps for a writer because you're writing anything and you go, any character, any character, you go like, oh, I'm going to very quickly, very quickly just find this name. And then there's six hours later, (laughs) you're still not writing the scene. So what happened with Clark is um, he's, the name was taken from the thing, from Carpenter's The Thing. There is a Clark in Mm. it. So that's what does does I took the name of an actual Antarctic research uh, scientist and the last name from the thing, and that's how he was born. Wow. It had nothing to do with the real murderer. Uh, so it
1: is it is a reference, just not to what it
2: might yes. seem like
3: it is. A reference yeah. to the thing, the movie, but not to the actual murderer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that is, I mean, that is really it. Really blew our mind. It's spooky. It blew our mind. It's and I we both yeah. remembered that you know that exact case too happening like a decade ago too. So. It you know it's still present in yeah yeah in our brains. I mean,
2: I'm I'm going to say that it's not absolutely that impossible that there's a stuff that lives in your skull and you're not mm. aware of. You mm. know, for sure. And and then you you put stuff down and it just is there. Yeah. But the fact is, there is a Clark character in the thing, so I think it's just by chance, which is spooky. I mm-hmm. will say.
1: So maybe we should move back a little bit further Mm -hmm. and just talk about Mm -hmm. your conception of the season and its arc. I mean, something that we've talked about on the on the podcast that uh, us and Richard are all very, you know, admiring of is how tight it is and how, you know, you there are clues sprinkled throughout. You really can solve the mystery by watching closely from the beginning, um, although all of us were surprised by the ending. Um, But yeah, tell us, when did you figure out who your murderers would be at what point in the process?
2: Oh my God! Moment one, mm. you know, I knew that the men had disappeared, and it had to be because they had done something terrible, right? It had to be. I'm very, very fond of Greek tragedy,
0: mm.
2: and and the undoing of the hero is always ambition, and and sometimes generosity. I think that um, the the tragic mistake is more interesting when when it comes from an ambition to do good. Mm. And um, I, I conceived this around the, the 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 deepest end of the pandemic, and um, I remember that I was watching Elizabeth Holmes' documentary, and they, they interestingly they had a philosopher talking as one of the talking heads, which I had never seen in a in a true crime thing, and the guy was saying it's kind of a disease. The feeling that you have a mission to mm. do good. Mm-hmm. Was that the <laughs> Errol Morris uh, documentary? Yeah. It was. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you have a mission for the greater good, nothing will stop you from doing horrible things. And I was like, oh, yes, scientists, blah, blah, it together. Mm-hmm. And then I knew that justice had to come to them from what they would do. So in, in my initial three pages that I always write to myself, In order to sit in front of a studio and tell them what the story is about, I knew exactly who had done it.
3: Mm. It's so fantastic. I mean, we guessed and guessed um, who the murderer or murderers were. And for them to be women from the community, you know, they're in every frame. They're there from the beginning. They're on the margins of society. And we're sort of taught, and it's sort of an, an indictment of the viewer, that these women are on screen. They're there. They're in the community. And yet we don't assume it's them because we don't center them in the story in the same way that we center other characters yeah, or Jody, white men. Yeah, Jodie
1: Foster said and, that and Jody Foster, Foster really, when we were talking to her. Yeah, that it's, you know, a kind of a commentary on implicit bias
2: in the viewer as well. Yeah, which... Is- the fact is, uh, we don't pay attention mm. to certain people. And that's exactly what the series is about. And that's exactly the cardinal sin that... Hopefully the audience will make too. And and that was the ambition from the beginning. It's it's uh, be the character, the woman that we meet in the in the crab uh processing plant at the beginning, and then we meet again with Danvers. Danvers asks her, Did they talk to you? What did they say when they talked to you? And she says, without even looking at camera, she says, Talk to us. We're the cleaning ladies. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and we have the woman at the cashier in the supermarket and we have the receptionist at the mine and the woman that washes the dishes at the police station and the woman that cleans at the hospital. And all of these women that we don't pay attention to, as happens with the victims of these crimes, are the ones that had enough and decide to change the story.
1: Richard uh, was uh, kind of holding close to the theory that the scientists had maybe hit a vein of like some kind of chemical or gas or something that like accidentally drove them crazy, and then uh, they you know killed themselves because of that. Did you can did you consider like making na- the nature versus humanity metaphor, I guess like more literal <laughs> in some well, way? I
2: I didn't. Um, <laughs> there is another series called Fortitude that. Um, I, I really like the first season, um, but uh, there is constant uh, the, the comparison between the the two of us. I think the two series are very different, other than the setting, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I felt that number one, it would make us super close to Fortitude.
0: Mm.
2: Number two, it felt a little. Science fictiony, and um, though it's not, though the truth is, the permafrost is melting and the stuff is coming out of it. That is happening. Yeah. But uh, but rather than make it into into a science accident, I thought that it was a great occasion to to make us the villains, You're, and and um, not villains and the heroes too of the story, both the scientists and the women. So I was very very sure of that idea. That said. There were um, some notes that I got both from producers and the studio suggesting if I wanted to consider that option, mm. but it was never part of my plans. Mm-hmm. I do love, however, to see how it's emerging mm-hmm. am- amongst many other amazing theories, because <laughs> it's it's just so much fun to see to see the theories emerging.
3: Do you have a, a favorite fan theory now looking back on it that you can be like, that was really crazy or that was so off? <laughs>
2: You know what's or like, so what if funny? I had done it like that instead? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i so far, I haven't done that mm. uh again I'm, I'm i'm just putting my little toe in into social media and then pulling it out because it's um it's heated
3: yeah. out there toxic, some <laughs> might say
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but I will say for every i don't know, probably eighteen love letters that I get, there's two. And I save them because it's like, whoa, that's coming from a really, really lonely, sad place, my man.
0: <laughs> Very lonely. But, lonely is an operative yeah, word, though, yeah.
2: Yes, yes. But, um, but, anyways, I do, I do put my toe, and so far, not, not a single one has been like, oh, that would have been interesting. But what I find right, right this second super entertaining is the obsession that people are developing with the color blue. Mm. There mm. is a whole thing about, there's a lot of blue in the in the art and um, the the photography style that Florian Hofmeister, the the DP, uh, went for, and at the same time that uh, working with um, what Daniel Taylor, the production designer, did, comes together pretty blue, which makes sense because the first season was very yellow mm. and uh, and very ochre, and there was a yellow king in it. Mm-hmm. And this is very blue. <laughs> Bear with me. The <laughs> no. Crab Factory, the Crab Factory is, is called the Blue King. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> There's nothing beyond that. But I love <laughs> it that people picked up on That's... the yellow season having a yellow king and the blue season having a blue king. And the Blue King Crab Factory is also, uh, you know, their sign is in the ice ring. So they're like, oh, it's the Blue King in the blue season and then julia has blue hair Mm. and the drawing that darwin did is blue and i'm like that's just so amazing (laughs) we love looking for a
1: pattern yeah we love to we can't stop ourselves and blue is blue is also the opposite of orange that is true oranges are obviously a recurring (laughs) motif an element in it yeah is it are the oranges a, a straight godfather
2: reference is there more to them Well, what happened with the oranges is um, sometimes when I answer these questions, I feel like the like the evil man that comes into the club and turns on the lights. (laughs) (laughs) And I hate that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. Um, Please. So um, the orange comes from there was a scene that I wrote in one of the earlier passes of drafts where Navarro was sent to do a super pedestrian thing in the middle of all of this. I love the idea of Navarro having to do some super stupid job. And because of ice in the roads, there, the, uh, a truck of oranges had toppled and there were oranges all over the, the road. And so she was super bored, picked up an orange. And I'm, I'm just writing this scene, as happens often. And, and she throws the orange into the darkness, gets a call, and then the orange comes back. Because those things happen when I write. It's just <laughs> like, of course the orange comes back. And um and then the orange started to 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 move into the story. Eventually I I caught the scene, but I love the idea of the orange. So I, I put the orange being dropped by some of the hunters that joined the manhunt. And um and the moment that I knew the orange was an element and it was going to revisit, I did think of the Godfather <laughs> because it is the announcement of death coming to us. And at the very end, in episode six, she says, my mother loved oranges. So it does feel that she's sending them back as part of her call of her visitation of don't forget Mm. who's on this side. Mm -hmm.
3: It's so interesting. I mean, the orange is a great example of how you play with the supernatural and the spiritual, and yet... Everything can be explained sort of logically, practically. Um, but still, there were some questions by the end of the last episode. We still don't know. Can you tell us about the tongue? How I, knew you were, I knew that was the <laughs> next question. Did, how did you know? It? I <laughs> knew it
2: wasn't the next question. So I'm going to give you the two answers, right? Okay. Ooh, two answers. I answer two number answers. one. No, because I will never give you the one answer. There <laughs> has to be two for you to choose. Okay. Yeah. I think I was. Uh, one of the most formative experiences um, that I had as a storyteller was Choose Your Own Adventure. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, <laughs> I love those books. Anyways, um, so one is uh, Danvers, when when she comes in episode two to Navarros and, and says that was Annie Stong. It was the right DNA there is some strange damage to the to the cells in it, and it could be from freezing. She doesn't say it was frozen. It could be from freezing. It's a strange, the pattern. So you could assume that Annie's body is found outside the villages in that dumpster that we saw her and her tongue, you know, Hank did cut her tongue and dropped it as part of the cover up of a warning and using it, the occasion to actually warn people to not do this because he's working for the mine at this point. So he drops the tongue, leaves the body, and the body is found by we don't know who, before Navarro is called to the scene. Mm-hmm. And in this story, what I imagine happened is it's a community. And one of these women who is called by a child or gets here takes care of the tongue. Mm-hmm. As A tiny gesture of kindness and reverence for this poor girl, because they know that she's going to be taken for an autopsy. And, you know, the indignities that had already happened are going to continue. So this woman keeps the tongue and they keep it. And when they come into the station, they leave it as a sign of what happened there. Mm. Right. To give her back her voice. That's one vision. The other one (laughs) (laughs) is, you know, Clark knows she's coming back. And she's out there, and she's awake, and she comes to witness how her women, her sisters, take these men, and she leaves that. Because so it's time, time to supernatural. tell the story. That's mm-hmm. the supernatural. The supernatural. Yeah. You decide.
3: She's yeah. <laughs> right. an adventure. Yeah.
2: Um, and on
1: a sort of a, a similar note, um, I we were all kind of obsessed with the character of Rose, uh, Fiona Shaw's character, especially, you know, when she makes that like a beautiful Christmas uh, Feast. spread for herself. <laughs> for <one. laughs> um, can, can you tell us a little bit about her and her function in the story and kind of, you know, where, where you were coming from with her?
2: Um, that's, a, you know, it's, it's amazing how it happens when you're writing. At the very beginning, I, I first wrote the first episode without knowing a lot of what was going to happen later. I knew the very ending, but I didn't know anything in between. And so it was an old man. His dog comes and the dog goes out and the man follows his dog until he finds the bodies. It was a lot more natural in a way. And then I finished that. I, 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 that was a treatment. And uh, and then I got the green light to make it into a script. And as I was making it into a script, I thought that it would be amazing that that's a visitation, possibly, that takes the character there. And um, and then I thought of Roscoe's father mm-hmm. and who was this man and what was his story and if he had a lover. And uh, And the next question forever is, if I'm going to make... A survivalist woman. How the question that I ask constantly of myself when I'm writing of every scene of every character is, how can we make this surprising? What is the part that I won't necessarily see coming when I see a survivalist woman in Alaska? So, and by the way, I did watch a lot of documentaries about, uh, you know, the National Geographic, mm-hmm. living below zero, all of those things. And th- there's, there's a very a specific type of Women that live alone up there. And (laughs) the last thing you would expect of them is to be some uh, scholar Mm -hmm. that has disappeared from the world. But that's the other side of Alaska. It's a place where people go to disappear. They do. So I thought of how much fun would it be to have Susan Sontag, (laughs) because that was my constant reference. And when I told Fiona, she was like, "Oh, I read at her funeral," and I was like, "Oh my god, this was meant to be, meant to be." And uh, and our whole thing is what would happen if Susan Sontag stood up one day and said "fuck all this" (laughs) and took nothing with her except all of her books and moved to Alaska. You know, and that's that's Rose.
1: Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment when we return more with true detective showrunner Issa Lopez. The run for revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, Nikki.
3: Yes, it's been
1: really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us?
3: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
1: We can. We can.
3: All right, here we are. <laughs> I love that you uh, brought back up season one, and clearly there are all these allusions to uh, to previous True Detective, specifically season one. Um, We, you know, with the spirals in the last episode, we get the line, "Time is a flat circle." Someone once told
0: me, "Time is a flat circle. Everything we've ever done or will do, we're gonna do over and over and over again."
3: Can you tell us how did you sort of find a way to naturally incorporate that? And also was HBO like, oh, you have to have at least 14% references to the first season. Like, no. is there a missive that you have to hit? They
2: were they were like, you do you, do whatever. Mm. We love you, do whatever. And I was, Are you, you know, you're kind of, you're taking s- something precious. And you sort of expect it with a set of instructions, right? They were like, no, it's yours. And I was like, but... Do we, does it need to happen in two times? It's yours. But do we need to? It's yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, so I never, I didn't start off saying, like, oh, we're going to have the references. Um, I did love the idea of once I decided Alaska was a place, the fact that Ross's father had died there. And it was a, a Texan survivalist that had come back from the Vietnam War, not okay. And then become a survivalist in Alaska and that Ross himself had lived there. And it was, why not uh, brush on that, right? And and so when I had the ghost for Susan Sontag, Rose, I was like, oh, can I make the time frame work with the ages? And uh, mm. and it did end up working. We're tight, but worked. <sighs> so was Rose, uh, and Travis Cole, wasn't it? Um I knew that there was a sign that uh, would connect the night country. You know, the, we think that the night country is Ennis, but there is a night country below Ennis mm-hmm. that where n- truly never ever the, sh- the sun shines. It's forever night, and those, that's the the cave system. and uh, And I love the idea that you see the symbol of the places where. At least in the, if you're going to go the mystic route of the of the people in Ennis that believe in this mystic side, that there is a, that symbol of the spiral there. What it is, when we finally find it, is fossils of ancient sea creatures trapped in the ice, and it creates that spiral. Did the fish die in that shape because there is that force in there, or because the fish were frozen in that shape? and for centuries the lore of the town knows that that's hidden there
0: mm.
2: how is the spiral created what came first is it older than the eyes? or is it just that we've had this tradition for centuries up to you once again <laughs> but it was so useful because um, in epi- in series 1 the spiral marks the rituals and the places that connect with carcosa carcosa being the world beyond, the world where the old gods roam. So it was a very natural thing without having to, without having to impose something that didn't belong into the flavor and the mythology that I was creating. Mm. And that was the, the one rule is nothing is put on the show. It has to emerge from the story that I'm telling. So that happens with the spiral and, um, The other reference, like the total united, well, if I'm I'm going to create an evil corporation, which happens, you know, an an all-powerful umbrella situation, why not make it into the very dirty money that is mixed with politics that was established? And all of this Mm -hmm. is just to say to the people that watch the series, this is happening in the same world. This is not a different reality, a different United States. It's the same world.
0: Mm -hmm. where
2: those events happened for us to create a same universe where the two stories happened. So that's exactly how it happened. Regarding Time is a Flat Circle, I do believe that at least in Clark's mind, Annie died in that cave. But Annie was dreaming about that tattoo, which is the thing that is in the place where she's going to die. So for him is she always knew Mm -hmm. She, that, that's the place where everything ends and starts for her. It is a cycle. And the spiral itself suggests the cycle. And um, and he's a scientist. And, and as we know, time flows. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> if you're, you're going to go down the path of um, quantum physics. So it just was the absolute natural thing for him to explain how is it possible that in his mind, Annie has always been asleep in that cave and wakes up every so often. And that's why Otis did find her in his logic of the events.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I do also love how when he says that you see Danvers kind of roll her eyes and be like, oh, this fucking guy, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of the other side of, of the original yes. True Detective,
2: which yeah. is like, what is he talking about? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> not
1: to not to take it back yeah. down to earth very abruptly um, but yeah. actually maybe yeah. maybe we should um, I'm going to put Chris on blast here and say that uh, he did Google our ice caves real yeah when he was
3: watching I have never been in one and hope to never be in one <laughs>
1: but yeah we we spoke to Jody as mentioned um, she talked about how difficult it was shooting her underwater scenes can you talk a little bit about the filming of the of the finale and you know the ice cave sequence and the underwater sequence it seems very technically tricky yeah
2: Oh my god! I, this is one of those things that you write, and as you're writing it, uh, the the filmmaker that you are is kicking the writer. Like really, <laughs> I was I was being kicked in in parts of my soul that usually don't get kicked. Like how do <laughs> ice caves? You know what is going to entail that, especially the ice caves, the the underwater. I've done it many times in my in my work, and it's tricky, but but you can do it. It's tough um even for super well uh, water trained actors as Jody discovered I, I'm I'm sure she told you but if you rehearse and you have the whole support system it really works and and it works for us the main challenge of the underwater was that it had to be underwater in the dark mm-hmm. and how how the hell do you see that <laughs> So that was so we that's what we dropped the flashlight into the water. But we had to time the flashlight with Jody with weights. And there was a diver, obviously, to bring her up. But in the dark, even though she knew and she's such a veteran of many other things, that there was someone there waiting to bring her back to the surface. The moment that you're let go in water and you're weighted down and you just go down, there's something that happens in your body that. Hispanic immediately which looked great in camera (laughs) but I was suffering for her I was Mm. because she was like oh this is nothing oh my god no 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 I've done this many times you should keep my hat on so the hair doesn't like so in control and then when she went in and I had this feeling and we brought her up and she comes to the surface, and I was like poster are you okay (laughs) and she was like yeah (laughs) are you really okay? And she was like, it's horrible. And I was like, I know, (laughs) I know do it again. (laughs) It was tough. It was tough. Um, the ice capes though, uh, there are ice capes. There's beautiful, beautiful, insane, incredible ice capes in Iceland. It's impossible to shoot in them. I mean, you can do one shot, but not an entire damn sequence of people getting lost in, Mm -hmm. in ice capes. So my production designer, he genius, Dan, um, I was like, "What? how are we going to do this? We had uh, done scenes in caves in a work we had together. It was just caves. And he's one of the very few production designers that can fake a cave because fake caves look horrible <laughs> in <laughs> cinema TV like horrible. I just can very see obviously that it's fake. fake. So, uh, but he had done it beautifully with the stone caves before. Now, yeah, ice is a completely different thing. And I was like, I need to learn to know if we can do this or I have to seriously rewrite this thing. And he was like, we can do it. We can do it. And then finally, when he walked me down his fake caves and I saw them through Florian's lens, because it was also about the lighting. I was like, we're going to be able to wing this. And uh, and yeah, voila, we have ice caves.
3: You could have fooled me. They were amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Uh, It's so interesting talking about the, the water scene. I mean, that scene is so gorgeous. And water obviously plays a big part in the series. We have Julia, you know, walking into the water, into the... Into the ocean, and then we noticed, you know, upon reviewing the series, that Kwavik is reading a Virginia Woolf novel.
1: Oh no, Uh, he's reading Who's Afraid afraid of Virginia? Virginia. Who's Afraid
3: of Virginia Woolf? (laughs) Sorry, he's reading Who's Afraid of Virginia (laughs) Woolf, which there seems to be some, you know, a parallel there between you know Virginia Woolf and her death and Julia as well. How intentional was that also?
2: That's amazing. No, but I wish it was. But I so wish it was. <laughs>
0: OK,
1: so oh with, our, with our crazy corkboard,
2: <laughs> sometimes we're reaching too far. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, but I love, love, love that it is. I mean, the, the decision of, of him reading uh, Virginia Wool was on purpose. The selection of the books in, in the different sets was serious because normally they are the problem and they, they're brilliant, but they just put books. You know, and and I knew that because of the nature of this show, if if it worked the way we wanted, which it did, people was going to obsessed. and and those yeah, people are going to like freeze in, every frame. Mm-hmm. So the books, for example, in in at Cadix and Julia's, I wanted them to be smart people books. <laughs> I was yeah. like, don't bring me. I'm not going to say titles, but it's not self help. <laughs> Is not beach reading. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, same as Rose. Rose is oh my god! You know the books that Rose reads are smarter than anybody in, on that set. Starting with <laughs> the only person that is smart enough for that is Fiona Shaw. I mm-hmm. will say. <laughs> yeah. So um, so with Kavik, uh, we um, um uh, Joel JD uh, who's delightful to work with. He actually wears glasses. Which is so against type of, and again, anything that is surprising, I love. So he would bring his glasses to read the script. And I was like, please keep the glasses for the scene. It's so, it's so amazing. So, and then we'd be like, not the type of folk you would expect um, a bar owner in Mm -hmm. Mm Ennis Alaska to, to, well, a burger joint is not a bar (laughs) Uh, in Ennis Alaska to to be reading. So, um, so why not? So mm-hmm. that was it, but it was not a reference to Virginia Wolf. I wish it was. <laughs> you just made it. <laughs> it, very, it, worked, very it, nice. it works. It works that was, way. Uh, yeah. Um,
1: and yeah, I noticed a uh, blood meridian uh, at Salal too, which is does that one seemed intentional? Uh, that
2: speaks so like clearly that to the is very the intentional. <laughs> yeah, the themes of the that's season. very intentional. And and yeah, that's that's it's a collection of boiler. You know, it's it's um it's the video games they play, the movies they watch. Um, the books they read and the music they listen, which I will say are not that different from my tastes. You mm-hmm. know, I love Meridian is what can we say? But it, but the themes in Blood Meridian are connected to the themes in the show. The show,
3: the series is so economical, as we've said, and everything gets used and has a purpose. Is there anything that you weren't able to fit in? Any scene or any sort of storyline that you wish you could have yeah, any, teased out a little any bit more? Any darlings
2: you had to kill yeah. that you missed? <sighs> Let me think. I'm sure. But let me. Well, I will need to think about it. I mean, the other thing is I probably suppress the memory because it's so painful, so mm-hmm. painful. But yes, it's a you know, you you're telling a, a, an A story and a B story, which is two murder mysteries. And then you're also the way that I treated um, the past, the history of these characters is also a mystery that I reveal slowly. So you, you only have so much space. And then I try to give the side characters as much life to, for them not to be paper. Then, you know, in the first treatments, uh, Peter Pryor was just a delivery of information. You know, a guy, mm. the guy that gives you the, the guy that checks on the computer and brings the information that my characters needed. And, uh, and that felt like cheating. So mm. I gave him a life and, uh, Tragic twist and all of those things. So there's only so much space that you can have. There was There's masses of history of who these characters are that is not in the story. The whole Danvers past of a uh, very strict religious father and okay. um, and old brother's. <clears throat> And her history of trying to escape an all male house by joining the police force <laughs> in, <laughs> in Alaska. And then there's, um, we, we know a little bit more of, of Navarro's past. There was a relationship of the mother walking out to her death and seeing that with the two girls. And um, there is one tiny spot in northwest Alaska that is a desert. It's insane. And it's a very, very dry very, very dead desert in the middle of the tundra. And I had this vision that the mother walks into that desert and that's where she dies. And that would connect with the that soldier in the desert that she remembers from Iraq. So the relationship between, in that desert that ate her mother and gave her the revelation of God, those are the kind of things that I had to, like the poetic level I had to drop some stuff to mm-hmm. to stick with the story.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, to to take it back to Danvers and Navarro, you know, the series ends with the two of them. Um, you know, their relationship—it seems like has sort of healed. They they have an ongoing relationship, at least. I mean, where where you leave them? Um, do you do you think they're going to be okay?
0: Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> we want I'm, them I'm to. Yeah,
2: I'm worried about my friends, Liz and Evangeline. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know, I know. I and and. You know, I dance a lot around that answer because I hate to um, give you my full conclusion because I think that there is a space for each member of the audience to to fill in the blanks and that has to do who with who you are and what you carry in a way. I also want them to be fine <laughs> very much. I think it's a love story. Uh, Not romantic, you know, but it's absolutely a story about two people that understand each other deeply in spite of their profound differences and are good when they're together, but the differences end up pulling them apart and those differences end up putting them together. They Mm -hmm. end up saving each other. Navarro comes back from there in that desert to rescue Danvers. And, and Danvers comes back from the dead because Navarro brings her back and gives her the peace with Holden's words in the end for, for them to be able to finally move away from the past that they've been trying to escape instead of turning around, embracing it and be able to move on. This sounds so corny. <laughs> <laughs> but it is the way I feel. And I feel that they're very evolved characters at the end of that. And and it's funny because I did get the question at some point, if there was a season two of night country, mm-hmm. which would be a, a massive departure of, of the true detective structure, let's call it that. But, um but the truth is, I don't think there is a, the, uh, any possibilities of doing day country. Now we will do it all <laughs> by day. And, <laughs> um, because the characters have evolved. And I don't think it's as interesting to see a Danvers that understands her feelings and is at peace with them. <laughs> and I don't think it's as interesting to see a Navarro that that has embraced her dark side and is and it's okay with it. You know, once the characters overcome, you should let them go, I feel.
3: So if they're might not be, or may not be, a, a, a true detective Day country, or a follow up to this specific uh, iteration of True Detective. Are you, are you working on a new project? Are you thinking about your next project? Are you fully still immersed in True Detective Night Country Land?
2: No, I, I can't. I can't get rid of Night Country quite that easily. You know, it it can like. There's um the very last phrase of the series is "No one ever leaves." And it feels true right now, <laughs> but uh, but that said, I am I am deep into working into a next incredibly creepy thing.
1: <laughs> Ooh, that's a good tease. Um, yeah, I mean, speaking speaking of no one ever leaves, um, that kind of reminds me of of the very passionate uh, True Detective fans who. I don't know, don't don't seem able to kind of let go of season one. And it feels it feels like they I don't know, there's this whole subset of people that are very dedicated to being against anything like on any true detective that is not exactly that. Like what what is it about this franchise, do you think, that attracts that kind of like fervent I don't know, that fervent devotion?
2: Well, first of all, it was really good. Yeah <laughs> that was That's an easy that answer will, I guess you know true. Yeah. I mean it, it was really good in its own way it was its absolute own beast mm-hmm. and it spoke to it really touched a nerve with a with a very specific sector of the audience you know i think that there is a, a disillusioned audience member that um many of us who, who feel that appear this world of appearances has absolutely Jumped the shark for all of us, and and we feel a lot like Ross Cole punching beer cans and 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 saying, "I know the truth." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I feel that we all have that person inside of us, and it just spoke to 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 a bunch of people very powerfully. I do love the fact because it, I love that series a lot, and um, and this was done out of love to that series. Otherwise, I would have never taken the job. Mm. And um, and I do love the fact that so many fans of the first season are so excited about this one, but not all of them. And Mm -hmm. that was going to happen. I knew it from day one that they not all of them. And um, and they were not going to just quietly uh, go like, oh, they made it into something else. Mm -hmm. But that said, um, they're watching, which is super (laughs) So much fun. (laughs) I thought they were going to watch one or half of one and turn it off. And but they're watching. So something in here is either it's really calling, you know, so mm-hmm. I hope in the end they're kinder uh, to exploring a different angle of it and um and if not, well, I had a lot of fun making it, and there's a lot of people watching that are enjoying it enormously so.
1: Yeah, I guess you can't, you can't focus on the negative when mm-hmm. there's no, so can't. much, when there is so much positive. So much, yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah. Um, how, has that extended, have you, anybody involved in the previous iterations of True Detective? Have you talked to any of them or, the, or you know, either the cast or the crew or creator? Have, is
2: No, I, n- not with uh, Nick nor Matthew nor uh, Woody. Uh, mm. I, I don't, I, I never met any of them. Yeah. Um, but I do know that um, Anonymous Content, who developed this, they saw the series and mine and they loved it. So that that felt great. Um, I, You know, my, my hope here is this was done not because, you know, HBO wrote me a massive check and I took the job. That's <laughs> not how I work. It was done because I love what they did. I love what they did, and I think that three seasons—not only the first season, but three seasons of exploring the the male psyche and the male disillusionment and and the, the desires and the obsessions—and it was really well done. And after three seasons of that, I think it's so much fun to try the same thing with the female psyche. Yeah.
1: So and if I you, do yeah. trust
2: if, if that you're, someone yeah. is going to be curious.
1: I'm, I'm curious, yeah, where where do you think this series goes from here? Like, what would a, what would a season, what would you want to see in a season five of True Detective?
2: That's a question for HBO. <laughs> um, because I have my ideas, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. I'm curious, though, you said that you're working on
1: something new that's creepy. You're not, like, done. You're not like, <laughs> I spent two years in the
2: darkness and no, now I want to, you know, like, do something fun. No, you know, it was so weird when I finished this. <laughs> that I just felt that there was a way to go deeper into Mm. the dark. You know, it was like, this was interesting, but what if we take, Route. So it's what Heber it's like the, it's at famous. the center of the earth.
3: <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah, <laughs> In all space. the spiral yeah. all the way down. You know what? Well, yeah. I for one will absolutely follow you into the dark, and can't wait to see. You'll
1: follow Deep Sea Baby. I
3: will follow Deep Sea Baby. <laughs> yes, I will. I I, I will follow you. Um, but wow, thank you um, so much, Isa, for uh, coming coming on to the podcast. Yeah, it's sharing. a really
1: fun show to talk about. It
3: is. It's so fun, and there's still there's so many. Uh, we could absolutely keep going, but we'll, we'll, we'll let we you We didn't go. even touch on the one-eyed polar bear. I know. Ugh, who I thought committed the crime at first. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was the one-eyed polar bear, and I'm not afraid to say it.
2: <laughs> well, um, you know, Pryor was with you, you know, in, epi- in, in, in episode two. And, and, and that, as I was watching the episode on TV, I was like, yeah, I never, we never really, because he says, Ask again. And he says, polar bear. And he says, polar bear, right? Because after you edit, you learn how they say it. (laughs) And, um, And she says, okay. And he says, came through the door, blah, blah, blah. And then I go, I never really... Explain why they just ditched this theory. It's not a bad theory. <laughs> it's not a bad theory.
3: I love it. That's I stand true. with prior.
2: It could have happened in, in an alternate
1: universe.
3: Yeah. That's exactly yeah. where we were. Absolutely.
1: All right, thank you so much, Isa. This has been a pleasure. My absolute joy. You're doing a
2: beautiful job with the podcast. Thank oh, you very Thank you.
3: Thanks so much. Well, that does it for this
1: episode of still watching and this season of still watching but don't fear still watching will be back very soon our next show the regime starring kate winslet is premiering on march 3rd on hbo
3: until then you can find me on social media at rilas r-i-l-a-w-s and you can find me at christress
1: and you can find me at Hillabuster. this has been still watching from vanity fair our producer is emily elias and we had production help from peyton hayes We had technical assistance from Jake Loomis. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week with The Regime. See you soon.
2: And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation.
1: She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots, I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague Heidi Blake at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai.
2: Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage.
3: And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere.
1: Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow in the dark, wherever you get your podcasts.